Rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Hello, and welcome to HealthScape. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. Today's topic is Alzheimer's disease, a family story of being. Alzheimer's disease is a neurodegenerative disorder that's progressive and involves cognitive memory and behavioral malfunction. It disproportionately affects women and can be of early onset. More typically, it affects the elderly, often having a very long preclinical course. It is also incurable and the sixth largest cause of um, mortality in the United States. The challenge only inflates as survival, uh, uh, as exp life expectancy increases um, as we age, giving rise to yet another burgeoning health crisis. Our guest today is Carlin Maddox. A brief bio follows. Carlin Maddox is a career journalist for 26 years. He was editor and publisher of a business magazine he founded covering the Tampa Bay, Florida region. He previously was a writer and reporter for the internationally, for the nationally recognized St. Petersburg Times, now known as the Tampa Bay Times. A native of Tennessee, Carlin attended and graduated from Georgia Tech on a football scholarship and subsequently earned an MBA degree from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Carlin and Martha reared their three children in St. Petersburg. They had been married 25 years when Martha was diagnosed in 1997 at the age of 50 with early onset Alzheimer's. Their children were still in high school and college. Thus began a 17 year odyssey of their family living with Alzheimer's and its fallout. Carolyn, welcome to Healthscape. So glad Trevor, you could come. Trevor, thank you very much. It's, it's good to be talking with you and talking uh, with your audience about a very significant issue, not just for our family, but for a number of families yes. uh, in the United States as well as around the, the world. Sure. So Carlin, the lives of you, your wife, Martha, your two daughters and your son were forever changed in 1997 when your wife received this dreaded death diagnosis. Um, could you please, uh, you had mentioned that you had no previous experience of the condition close up, uh, either through your extended family or through friends. Uh, please explain how you broke the news to your children. And how uh, you received it, of course. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about how we received it first. Um, right. My wife, um, we began to suspect that something was going wrong right. uh, about a year before when Martha was running for a political office. And um, there were just some issues that didn't make sense. And so 
in July of 97, we finally got Martha to go into a doctor's office, the neurologist's office, to get tested and then to get the results. So when I got home from work uh, in July of 97, I asked Martha how the doctor's visit went for the testing. And she said, well, uh, he was taking too long, so I just left. And, and um, I said, oh my. So we got another appointment made in which I went with her in the 1st of September of 97 to go through this series of tests. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, heard, we got the results back in, on September 23rd, mm-hmm. 97. And this is what happened that day. We got there and, um, wanted to, and we really were feeling comfortable and good with the neurologist that we had seen. But we, got told, we were told that he had an emergency and he was not going to be there, and the associate of his was going to be there. And this associate, um, he, could, he could have been Dr. Spock on Star Trek. He was cold. He was cerebral. He sat across a big desk from us and went on to say, I'm sorry, but it looks like you have early onset Alzheimer's. And he said, would you like me to explain why? And I just said, this, let's get us out of here. Uh, I, I just, it was just a very cold treatment for such a stunning kind of an announcement. So when we heard that, our world was not turned upside down, Trevor. It imploded before us. And we got home and we cried and had just a good, long cry. Mm-hmm. And the first thing after we, after we did cry that Martha told me, he said, Carlin, I do not want to tell a soul. I don't want to tell our children. Right. I don't want to tell our parents. And I certainly don't want to tell my brothers or my friends. Mm-hmm. And so that was where it's, that's how it all got started for us, which was a rough, a real rough patch. Right. Yeah. It's a very rude awakening. And, you know, I mean, to, to just, give someone a, a, a deliver that kind of diagnosis and say, you want me to talk about it? It's kind of like, it sounded like you were being hurried out the office almost. It, um, I, uh, I don't know if we were being hurried, but he, he just, this particular doctor just did not have any kind of, uh, shall I call it bedside manner where it okay. was just, just, he, he didn't come around and, and sit beside us and talk to us and share with us. He had this, uh, there was about a five foot desk and, and, and five feet between us mm. when, he, when he was sharing this. And there's no need to belabor that, but that's just the way that, uh, that, that we were told. Right. Um, so it, it was about um, uh, three weeks, two to three weeks, uh, we had, at the time we were told we had one daughter in high school at home and two children in college away. Um, and um, there was one person though that um, Martha was willing to talk with. And that was a uh, friend and a retired minister um, 
by the name of Lacey, and she said she was willing to talk to him. And um, so I called Lacey that day, and he came the next day. And Lacey was a big hulk of a man, about 6'4", 270 pounds. And um, Martha and I were sitting in the couch together and Lacey in the chair opposite. And as we shared with him, he, he just broke down crying as well as we again. And then he nodded to me if we could swap places where he could sit beside Martha and put his arms around her. And... Um, so once we got through the shock of that, he said, Carlin, um, I know a nun uh, who is a retreat director up in Kentucky. We are in St. Petersburg, Florida. And I send, I have sent many of my friends there in crisis to visit with her. And it, the visits have always been very meaningful. Uh, I, I if you went, and I would encourage you to go, I, I, I don't know what you would get out of it, but I suspect it would be real meaningful. Mm -hmm. And um, so we still had not told our children well, by that time, that day. And Martha, Martha and I went up there three weeks later, had, a, had an excellent visit. It was just a, a big farm, and we were able to walk and talk through things and and sort of get settled with some issues and the like. And this uh, retreat director was uh, very helpful. Uh, didn't offer a lot of advice, but certainly was very gentle in hearing us out and, and the like. But so when we got back home, we, uh, not much later, we went to visit our two children in college up in North Carolina. And that's where um, um, we told that Martha agreed that we should tell our children. And uh, just backing up a bit, after um, after we got the got the word from the doctor, um, Martha uh, was talking to Rachel, our, who was in college, on the phone. And Rachel was asking well, how the doctor's appointment go, and Martha said everything is just fine. But when we saw them in person, David and Rachel, uh, and I, Martha went into another room, and then I told the children what the what the diagnosis was. Martha came out, came in, and looked very sheepish to Rachel, knowing that she had not told Rachel the truth on this. So the stigma of something like this, the the reason I'm prolonging this is the, the stigma on something like this, Trevor is. Real runs real deep in a lot of people. Right. It certainly did with Martha. Yes, right. No, I, I can imagine. There's so much, so much of of mental illness is still stigmatized today. Yeah, um, you know, it's it's actually uh, shocking. But you know, it's something yeah. we try and we try to destigmatize it through information. And obviously, this fear comes into it plays a huge part as well. Yeah. Um, could you please just give us some insights about Martha, how she was as a person, her beliefs, her thoughts, her interests pre-illness? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Martha was Martha was a very energetic person. She was much more had much. She was much more high energy than, than I am. Yeah. I mean, she she loved to play tennis. She loved to 
dance and she loved to sing. And with her friends, she loved to talk smack, if you will. And, um, but she was also very involved in politics and civic affairs. Uh, she had been on the St. Petersburg City Council uh, for six years in the mid 1980s. Mm-hmm. And then, as I mentioned, um, the year before her diagnosis, she was running for an open seat in the Florida State Legislature, right. which she, uh, in hindsight, thankfully lost by 20 votes. Um, uh, so she was just very, she was a very engaging person and very, and, and just drew people around her like a magnet. And, right. uh, and, and so it, the, the consequences of Alzheimer's are just so contrary to Martha's personality and behavior uh, before going in on this. It, it just, it's, it's very dramatic change, yes. Yeah, yeah, must must have been shocking. Your book, A Path Revealed, How Hope, Love, and Joy Found Us Deep in a Maze Called Alzheimer's, is focused on the disease itself with its very many varied and profound effects. It also describes your odyssey that you lived through for over 17 years now, you insist that this process was an odyssey and not a journey. Please expand on that. Well, I, I, I insist on a couple of things in, in my book. Mm-hmm. One, I chose not to capitalize the uh, name Alzheimer's because I didn't think Alzheimer's deserved such capitalization. I mean, okay. even though it was named after Dr. Aloy Alzheimer's. Right. But anyway, that's on the side. Um, a, lot, a lot of people call something like this a journey. Mm-hmm. But what we went through, Trevor, and I think what a lot of people go through, it's uh, uh, the word journey, it just sounds to me too tame and too planned. Right. Um, as an odyssey in the classical sense, you wake up one day in a foreign, strange land. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're lost, you're confused, and you're hurt. And all you want to do is to get back home, back home where it's warm and comfortable and, quote, normal. Uh, and uh, I went searching a lot of different corners, read a lot of different books, trying to figure out a way, how do we get out of this thing? Even though the medical community says it is not curable, I wanted to be the one person who could find the cure (laughs) just to show my ignorance. Um, But you really do want to get back home. Um, And when you do get home, uh, if you do, uh, we just found, I just found that home was not the same place as when we left. No. And I was not the same person. That's mm-hmm. when I left. And uh, so that's what I mean. Oh, the vast, that's, it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's the scale. I agree. It's totally a, another thing. A journey, I think, became a catchword after, especially the popularization of Joseph Campbell's work in the 80s, you know, the hero's voyage and that. And I have the highest respect for his work. But uh, journey is now used for any 
ex minor expedition as well. It's kind of right in the value Absolutely. a little bit, perhaps, right? Okay, so now um, currently I've been reading this in a very reliable uh, health on, on a health website. It can take up to two years to get the diagnosis. Uh, you know, this is United States figures. Partly, I suppose they average it out with people living in rural areas where there isn't maybe that much medical support and have to wait longer for appointments. I'm not sure. But um, was the um, how did you make sense of events that were maybe inexplicable because you hadn't been given the diagnosis yet? You mentioned. The, 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 the walking out of the appointment, right? Um, yes. But were there other lapses where something was perhaps said, uh, a reaction to some family issue that just seemed like so far out of field or, or maybe an insight that she shared that was less insightful to everyone else? Warning signs. I, I, I didn't catch anything of real significant until uh, Martha was in that um, legislative race the year before okay. she was diagnosed. Right. And what, what happened, uh, Trevor, was um, she was on a panel discussion before a group of very politically attuned people there, here in St. Petersburg. And uh, the panel were, were the three other candidates for this same legislative seat. Mm -hmm. And I'd seen Martha in those situations many times, and she was very cool, calm, collected, right. civil in her response, but very clear in her response. This day, and this was almost to the day a year before her diagnosis, uh, this day um, she had to ask for every question to be repeated. Okay. And I'm saying, oh my. And then when she responded to that question, it was slightly off, 10 degrees off, I'll say, in terms of just responding to mm -hmm. what the question was asking. And I, I, um, I couldn't figure out what was going on. And when, when we got home, I said, Martha, what was happening? What uh, just, and, and she says, what, what, what do you mean, Carla? Uh, I thought everything went well. And so that, that was the full, the full on that I began to sense that something was, something was going on. But it took us, you're talking about uh, two years to get to see the doctor. It wasn't because, it, it wasn't that we couldn't get in to see a doctor. It took us as a family yes. a full year to get her, to convince her that she needed yes. to and see the doctor. Yeah, that's also the case, uh, largely. It's just the denial, you know, uh, uh, which is normal, human to, you know, like yeah. uh, maybe it's a lapse or maybe this got a infection somewhere that needs to be treated, especially as we age. Um, now, disclosure, I hear this from patients all the time, is sometimes difficult to distant family, like a cousin or an aunt or an aunt, uncle living at a distance where they will often respond to an early diagnosis as um, almost in a way that questions one's behavior. Like they'll say something like, um, 
she is your mother, you know, as though, I mean, yes, that's why I'm phoning you. It's important, you know. Partly that is denial, partly fear. But did you come across any of that where you felt you were doing the right thing by disclosing it now to more distant family that you felt should know? And that kind of like, why gave you the sort of why bring this up treatment? Well, one brings it up because it's relevant, but you were treated with a bit of an edge. This has been described to me so many times by various patients. You talk about that, that I as a caregiver was being questioned. Is that what you're saying? Well, just the, the, as an informant, just telling, just disclosing. It's sort of okay. like, you know, the people will say, but she's your mother. Yeah, that's why it's important. And I'm telling you as the as her sister kind of thing, you know. The um, I, I didn't have that problem. I mean, Martha. Oh, good. Martha's uh, two two of her brothers lived here nearby, so we could talk to them in person. And the children uh, had been suspecting something, and so uh, that that was just not an issue for us. I've heard the same thing as well, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it just was not an issue for us. Trevor. Well. Great, you at least spared that because people yeah. are often greatly hurt by that. It's already a difficult decision to make. It's a difficult qu uh, conversation to initiate, and then you get the us. And it's it's fear based. Eventually, everybody comes to see what it for what it was, and and I guess feels a lot better about it. So yeah. Now, as we know, memory gradually disintegrates. Uh, and it can also fluctuate a great deal. So they can go through a bad patch and it looks like they're getting better after a few weeks. How did you and your family come to terms with this? Come to terms again with what? With, with the fluctuation, like each day. Oh, oh You good. never really know what. Of all the symptoms. Unexpected. Uh, all the, uh, well, one of the things uh, over a period of time, Martha in her quote, normal life, Martha had a temper, which you blow up and then would resolve and get over it. And mm -hmm. uh, Martha's, interestingly, Martha's temper sort of disappeared. Right. Um, and, and she became a much more gentle person, but nonetheless, um, there were, uh, the, 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 the symptoms were, um, could be very disjointed, did not make sense. Um, and, and at the same time, it could, there, there could be situations very embarrassing. And, right. I, and I, I'd have to be trying to explain what was going on. And just as an aside on this, something I heard too late for me, but I, I heard some folks who had, has, uh, were in a similar situation, and uh, they had they had made up little business cards, business card sized notes that said, "My wife has Alzheimer's disease. Thank you for being so uh, understanding." After after say Martha had done something embarrassing, uh, I, if I had that card, I would have just handed it to them, and that would have resolved that whole kind of an issue. Yeah, that's uh, a good point. Yeah, no, I'm sure. Yeah, and that was a good tip that I wish I'd come across yeah. Yeah, early, well, early on. But yeah. I think the main thing, um, I remember 
our daughter, Rachel, who was uh, in college and, uh, and when she would come home, she would get very upset that says, I, ca I cannot talk with mommy. I don't, I can't have a, yeah. a conversation with her that makes any sense. And I had learned by that time, and I, and I, I shared with her, I said, Rachel, you have now got to, like I have got to learn how to step into Martha's world and how, how to sort of what is going on in her mind right. as best we can. I mean, you're never yeah. going to be there completely. No. But you, you've got to have an attitude of, okay, Carla, don't try to impose my agenda on yeah. what she's doing. Absolutely. But let me step into her world and and if she wants to, if she wants to make some statement that is just absolutely untrue, don't even try to challenge that mm -hmm. uh, because it's 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 a it's a moot issue uh, to, right. to right. try right. to convince her that I'm right and you're wrong. Yeah. No, it's 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 pretty much a, a futile exercise. And even if if they're crying, there's some dementias like the vascular dementias um, where they sob a lot, and we assume that that sadness, but we don't know if the appreciation of the crying is coupled to sadness. We don't even know that much. Yeah. Garland, um, we, we just have to take a short um, commercial break. Okay. We'll be right back. You're listening to Healthscape with your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell, speaking to Carlin Maddox about Alzheimer's disease. Are you satisfied with your chronic pain treatment? Chronic pain experts agree that recovery can only occur when the psychological and social issues which help trigger and drive the chronic pain are treated along with the other problems. Medications, injection therapy and a range of physical therapies may provide temporary relief of symptoms, but they don't actually address the root causes that drive the chronic pain. I'm Dr. Trevor Campbell, a chronic pain consultant and author of The Language of Pain, a self-help book for those struggling with chronic pain. Add this type of therapy to your existing treatment plan and experience the difference. Get your copy of my book, The Language of Pain, on Amazon. And for further direction, there's also the Language of Pain online course available on my website, www.trevorcampbellmd.com. Act now to take back your life. You are listening to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to host at trevorcampbellmd.com. Now back to the show. You mentioned that this awful condition brought your family together despite all the grief, the stress and so forth um, and complication and disruption that it would generate. In what ways other than a communal uh, determination and devotion to the cause assisted you in this during this odyssey? Um, Trevor, a couple of things come to mind with, with your question. One, um, I began from the very start to keep a journal, um, not for quote, spiritual reasons. I had so much information coming at me mm -hmm. and I was reading so much stuff that I just began keeping a journal 
And uh, that journal went on until I had about 17 volumes. Mm-hmm. Um, the, what I would do for, th- for things I fe- felt were important for the children to know is I would just copy pages out of that journal. They, two of them were in college away and one of them in, uh, at home. I would copy pages from that journal and just send it, give it out to each of them so that they could know where my head was, what I was thinking and, um, and where I saw uh, we were in the, in the cycle of this um, disease. That turned out to be very helpful. Uh, the children have told me. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing after David and Rachel graduated from college and returned here to the Tampa Bay area, uh, they came to me out of the blue one day and said, Daddy, uh, we would like to give you a weekend, a month off from caring from, from, for mommy. And that really surprised me, and, but it didn't take me long to say, really? Uh, and, I, and I jumped on that opportunity real quick so yeah david and rachel would come in and uh do whatever i would leave i would leave uh after work on friday afternoon and typically i would go to a nearby monastery where it's quiet and Mm -hmm. i could sit out in the orange groves and yell and vent and whatever and talk with the brothers there and laugh with them and do pray cry go walking, whatever. It was just, it was a great uh, venue for doing that. No matter what kind of a faith you may have, you're always a welcome guest in those situations. Right. And so they, they gave me that gift and it's, I'm eternally grateful for that. I mean, I, that went on for, I'm going to guess that went on from uh, a, a decade. Wow. Uh, and uh, was just very helpful. Yeah, well, good on them, and it's a it's a game changer. I mean, that respite can can give a lot of nourishment in tough times. Well, and along with that, uh, Trevor, our kids had to grow up real fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, by they got into a role reversal with their mother. Uh, they were suddenly right. the adult, and the mother was more kid-like, more childlike. That's right. And that was very hard for them to um, an, initially to take that on, but I think that had a very strong bonding effect for us. Right. All the way yeah, no, definitely. Now, you mentioned that what you learn in your first grade can help you for care of a parent <laughs> with a long-term illness. That intrigued me a lot, as you can imagine. Please well, elaborate on that. Well, I think anybody who's in the first grade, one of the first things they heard, like when crossing the street, was to what? Stop, look, and listen. Right. And I just, I translated that in our situation with Martha, I may have my mind in a hundred ways going about our business or 
whatever, but I just needed to stop and I, I need to look into Martha's eyes, be attentive to her mm -hmm. and to try to listen to what she was saying. It's that simple and it was that difficult to do. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was, that was something that just came into my mind and, and just would, would be a nice trigger for me. Okay, Carlin, stop. Right. So that was it. it well, you know, you, 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 by that simple instruction to yourself, you, you are actually summarizing what most psychotherapies or talk therapies try to do to slow us down. Stop, don't react reflexively because we, when we riled or, or stressed, we, we get deeper, you know, deeper into it kind of thing. Whereas just thinking and being neutral, saying, look, I can't change the situation, but this is my best efforts I bring to the table. It's very, I just, I use the word redeeming comes to mind. You know, it's, it's, it's very freeing. I think that's what I mean, uh, liberating, because that's really all we can do. You know, we, we, are, we have divergent trajectories in a situation like this. And one cannot, one cannot follow the other one. So you, you, you do what you can. So right. good on you. Um, right. I like that. In fact, I remember I was, I was, I was wondering how you're going to explain that. What, what it, I'm trying to think now <laughs> where I came from uh, grade uh, one is, um, is sub A it's called. And like, I just remember drawing patterns with crowns. That's what they gave me to shut me up and behave. And I, uh, <laughs> I used to do that. I thought, what's this answer going to be? Okay, now, um, the difficulty, well, there's just many difficulties, but you know, normally when we have a chronic disease, uh, physical or mental, uh, generally speaking, unless it's really they're wasting away tumors and stuff like that, they can look, they, they, they you, you kind of what's called uh, anticipatory grieving. But when you see someone in the uh, early to mid uh, stages of Alzheimer's, physically, if they want tr public transport sitting next to someone, they can look quite fine. Right. And the, the difficulty, I was trying to think the conditions where the person kind of, you you lose the person. Well, what you knew to a degree. I mean, yes, there's the emotional attachment and the memories, right. all that sort of thing. But that is particularly difficult, I think, in Alzheimer's. And patients have told me this indirectly in their way. It's, it's you sit and you, you, you've got to sort of, you take a step back, well, still looking well and yet there's this confusion right uh, i guess for some people more so than others so how did you make sense of that just by accepting that that's the way it is kind of thing or well i um I, some people have developed formulas for grief out of their grief experience i don't know if there's yes. any formula that you can do yeah, I, 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 in hindsight, I didn't know this as we're going through it, but it was it was uh, very much learning to grieve over a long period of time for us. So right, right. Uh, really, have... not just seventeen years, but it took me uh, several more years to write the book. And as I was 
writing my book, um, yeah. which came out in 2016, um, that turned out to be just helping me grieve really well. I, I remember many chapters I would just start. Well, I, before I started the book, I, I, I cracked open my journal and I said, oh, this is raw. I don't know if I can do this. And uh, in terms of just drawing stories from that, but even as I would be writing uh, my book, I, I just wouldn't break down crying. And I thought, mm -hmm. I think that was in hindsight was very healthy for me uh, to do that. I, I, I am a great believer in journaling. I think it gives us closure. It, it, it closes some of the tangles, the unanswered questions, the undone pieces that we sense this unfinished work it, it closes some of those little doors, I think, in a healthy way that we can, we feel we can move on. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, I, I, that's my, my belief. I, I think journaling is excellent because one can say something to a therapist or to a good friend and say, um, I, I can't stand one of my siblings. And it's like air in the wind. But the minute you write that in a journal, it's kind of like on your such and such a date, you were moved to write that. Now, don't mm -hmm. walk away from it. What is your explanation? Do you have one? Maybe you will find an explanation, a coherent one. But it kind of commits us more to a solution. That's my feeling. Right. Or it can do that. I don't think, you know, very highly anxious people, it can rile them, I'm sure, having the journal. Uh, I don't know. Writing, writing just feels more concrete. That's just right. leading, leading the solution. Yeah. No, I would agree with you. So I, I like it when people are going, I use it, I, I recommend it rather in chronic pain because suddenly, you know, clarity sometimes just appears to the person who's writing. And I mean, you can't argue with that because if it's come out of your own creation, it must be right. on your own mind, right? Now, right. meditation seems to have played a huge role in your in your maintenance, in your maintaining your integrity as a functional human being. And, and um, what would you say to somebody who's maybe, whether or not they're having a, a family member with Alzheimer's, what would you say to them if they had no experience of meditation in a sentence or two or three, however possible, yeah. what would you say I, to them it did for you? Uh, the um, I had no experience with meditation. Right. And uh, I first heard about meditation when we visited this nun at the retreat center in Kentucky. And she just suggested that we check it out. I did um, and got directed to a particular Benedictine monk who had a very simple approach to meditation of just repeating a word. And so Martha and I would sit down in the morning for about 15 to 20 minutes. And I would repeat that word quietly so that she could follow it and I would follow it. Mm -hmm. And then we would do the same thing in the evening. Right. And I felt over time, her anxiety level and mine just begin to diminish, go, begin to go way down. And I think that was a direct result of our being able to do that. And I'm still meditating.
today, Trevor, just mm-hmm. as an individual. Uh, so that uh, I found that to be very helpful. Not to make it complex or no. woo-woo or whatever else. No, no. no. I find you see, and I think the biggest problem with meditation, I find, is that people are kind of, at some level, afraid that they're not going to understand meditation. I always say you don't have to understand meditation. You just do it. It works for you, and you get the benefits. If anything, it helps you understand your own mind. Because we routinely use things in our garage or kitchen, which we don't understand exactly how the working is, but we know how to use it, and we're quite comfortable with that relationship. But this idea that it's that it's mysterious, it's it's actually innate. And a lot, you know, children often, uh, when when we grew up, I mean, pre iPad and all that kind of thing, we would be outdoors um, where I come from, and we always had dirty feet. That's what I remember because you'd walk around barefoot, right? And, and, and just sitting under a tree and then like standing on this bridge over the stream and throwing wood chips in and, being, and checking out the, the, um, the way it wiggles its way out of existence. Now, you might say, well, Trev, how bright were you? Well, th- that's not the point. The point was that you were in a kind of state of relaxation where you were not worried about the future. You know, there'd be supper at home. Uh, and, and when you know when you came, you'd have to get washed first because you're always kind of in the in the sand and that. But right. that's it's reverting to perhaps a state that we've lost that we seem to have lost. And with the social media, TV, social media, oh, yeah. it's just there's just distractions everywhere. Absolutely. And um, it, it, it just 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 an extension of what I'm talking about. When Martha was finally moved into a nursing home, yes, I would often go in to visit her uh, and find her in, a, in her chair or her bed. And Martha was not able to feed herself, to talk, take care of herself. Um, and I would find her in a fetal position, just anxiety. She was either in turmoil or just anxiety, anxious. Right, and I would I would sit down beside her, put my hand in hers, and begin to repeat our word that we agreed to quietly. And she often just uh, un, her body unfolded, and she either went to sleep or she looked out. But then again, look out the window or look at me, and it was just a peace that settled over that room that I haven't really experienced since then. You know, I'm just thinking a lot, and I'm not saying this is how it works. I'm not, uh, I don't know that. But sometimes it's what the person, the person may at a pre-verbal level pick up one's own state of we pity them or we are sad or something. And then when you start with something like meditation, they go into a different space and they are pacified because that can still reach them where maybe language doesn't that effectively anymore. You know, it's pre-verbal. And I'm, I, I, we're going to talk about art as well, uh, as I yeah. said we would, um, because that, to me, is very interesting. Um, you mentioned that art brought joy back to Martha's life. It didn't bring just, just bring joy. When we got the, got the diagnosis, Martha, who was a very very confident woman. Her confidence just 
went through the floor, right. just disappeared. And um, and it was about two years later that she started with our sister-in-law, KK, going to a watercolor painting class. And I was surprised when KK asked Martha to do this because Martha had never done anything that quiet and whatever indoors. She was an outdoor girl. Um, but Martha just loved it. And uh, and she she would tell me, she, she would have me go out with her to a craft store and say, I need to get this and I need to get that. And I need, give me, give me a list. And we would go, and she she was directing me again and, and with confidence, and, yeah, yeah. and 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 she would, um, but her her uh, became a very expressive way for her to just show things, and more through the coloration than through the pictures themselves, and and just Martha's colorful colorful inside began to show up in these paintings. That's uh, that's amazing, and and it's inter very interesting to me because I did see that one picture, which I thought was, I, I thought was good. It was memorable. Um, it reminded me a bit of a '60s sort of poster, you know, the love and peace kind of generation picture. Yeah, I think what the uh, maybe the art crowd the, would call lyrical, you yeah. know, and it's kind of like a dreamlike background and. Um, it reminded me immediately of someone I've known. He's an excellent physician uh, for over 40 years. And uh, he, his mother sadly developed it. And he said the, he's also a very gifted pianist. And he mm -hmm. said that the only times when she, towards the end, that he felt he was connecting with her at all um, was when he played certain pieces. Right. And he could see that face, you know, that, that face under normal life circumstances would have been recognition and and like and and in, not entrancement but you know like joy right and obviously there's you know parts of the brain the pre-verbal stuff uh, or the non-verbal stuff they they still these connections are there but they interfered with or interrupted and I, I just think that's incredible. And then it also reminded me, I worked on an education trust that taught literature to, to um, school children uh, for years, um, a few years. And the person who was the director knew um, Betty Edwards very well. Now, Betty Edwards, I only heard of her through Shirley, uh, was someone who spoke about drawing with the right side of your brain. And um, it's very interesting because she talks about, you know, not the verbal and analytical side, which was caused the old left brain. We now know that it's, everything's yeah. in both sides, but more the perceptual global. So it's possible that she, she was plugging in, she still could, or, or that function was still more intact. Yeah, uh, well, I, I, I can't talk to you about brainology, but uh, no, me. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not a neuroscientist. I mean, this uh, her her art went on for about uh, two years, maybe three, and then it just faded away. Her interest in it, and um, but those were those were uh, an amazing two to three year period. Yes. Uh, yes. Doctor, no. you, if you have Sorry. just a moment, just talking about your friend. 
we were in church one day and Martha, I would be sitting beside her and she just was sort of blanked out with whatever was going on. But we closed off with the hymn, Amazing Grace. And I saw Martha's face light up. She began to look out, out, the, out the windows to the side. And there was, just, there was just a connection. This was a song that she had always loved. Right. Was, that was amazing to me. Yeah. And you know what memories that stir up, even in a person with difficulty remembering. Maybe if it's not verbal, well, I mean, it was, it was, yeah. No, it's it it gives it gives one such a feeling after a long period of not communicating when there's some right. evidence of of this. Now, what can you can our uh, listeners do if they have a friend um, that is struggling with Alzheimer's? Because what we sometimes see is that people find it so sad that they visit them less often. What is your take on that? Um, in terms of our experience, uh, there were a number of friends, Trevor, who just disappeared. Okay. Um, but not all. And some would call me, and this could, this probably would be in the earlier stages. Uh, and I, I would let them go out to lunch with Martha or to go take a walk around in a park. Mm -hmm. uh, and they would call me and that would give me a break. Um, uh, so yes. the, the point is to, to, to get in touch with the person, the, care, the caregiver and say, how can I be of help to you? Right. To ask the question, not to say, I wanna do this or, you can make suggestions. Yes. But... Yes. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, no, because you know, just getting that respite and them knowing they 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 sometimes give the the explanation they felt in the way or something like that, um, or they just are too sad and they feel it's not going to add value. But I think it's very important for the family. And my advice is always to, my own advice is always, even if you pop in for 15 minutes, it shows support. Yeah. And, and, and again, with clearing it with the relatives first. And then also they do need a break. I mean, it's not, it's not, you know, they feel well, well, they won't know what to do if something goes wrong, but generally they minding someone who's sitting or lying down, right? Right, right. It, no, it, it, it's just a, a very sensitive situation. And I mean, I, the, the, the friends who sort of faded away, they didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. They didn't understand what the implications of Alzheimer's are. No, sure. And uh, so I just, I mean, it's human nature. I, I, just, I just need to it wasn't it wasn't a hateful thing, but it was just a sort of a disappointing for sure a, a, an ignorant kind of thing a, a reaction to to something that they didn't understand. So briefly, we're running out of time fast uh, very rapidly. Please tell us how we can access your book and blog. 
Yes, um, my blog is under uh, www.carlinmaddox. Let me spell my name because it's a little odd. C-A-R-L-E-N Maddox, M-A-D-D-U-X.com. CarlinMaddox.com. My book, uh, you can go to, the one main source would be go to Amazon and you can find find the paperback or you can find the uh, uh, digital. And, um, and it would again be under a path revealed, how hope, love, and joy found us deep in a maze called Alzheimer's. Or you can go to my name again, Carlin Maddox, and find it there. Right. Carlin, thank you for this heartfelt education that you give, you've given us. You and your family are a comfort and inspiration, and I would add an ideal for others to aspire to who are experiencing the same in their lives. Uh, in, a, in what I can only say is a very challenging situation. So thank you once again. Trevor, thank you for the opportunity to talk with you and to talk with your friends who are listening to you. Thank you. All the best to you, Colin. All right. Thank you. Bye now. This is your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell, signing off from Healthscape. You've been listening to a talk with Carlin Maddox on Alzheimer's disease. Goodbye. Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a healthy week.